This is a 980 CKNW podcast. We have been talking a lot about what's been happening in the United States with the separation of children from their families as they have entered the United States. We know that the president did sign an order to stop that. However, now much of the focus is on the thousands of families already separated and the work to have them reunited to get them back together again. So what are the long term effects of children being taken from their families? The American American Association of Suicidology has taken a look at this, and we're going to talk more about the findings, some of the research that's been done there. David Klonsky is a professor with the Department of Psychology at UBC, not part of the AAS, but can certainly talk to what the research says and what some of the concerns are that are being raised right now. Professor Klonsky, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, do we know what long-term effects there can be when a child, a young child, is separated from the parental figures? We have a, a decent idea, but it's also not just long-term, it's also short-term. Uh, interpersonal separations are one of the most common triggers for both suicidal feelings and also suicide attempts. And we also know over the long-term that disruptions in parental care not only predict increased chances of feeling suicidal, but they're one of the subset of variables that even among people who feel suicidal, most of those people don't make suicide attempts, but disruptions in parental care are are one of the predictors of not just feeling suicidal, but progressing from those feelings to actual suicide attempts. And does the research look at the length of the separation? In general, uh, separations or disruptions that are not just longer, but but more, more intense, um, and you know more traumatic using that term in the in the general sense will tend to have lar- larger impacts and so you know certainly the kinds of disruptions we're talking about um, where they happen in you know in, in very salient ways very scary ways with very little information about when uh, you know when this will end um, and with very little what we call perceived control are are a, a more severe version. And I would imagine, too, in a situation like this, we're already talking about a scenario where there there likely has been trauma, there's been stress and upset for a family to be in the, the predicament, to be in the situation where they're illegally crossing into another country, to then have the separation on top of that. Uh, um, I would imagine the research has also looked at uh, putting all of those things together. Uh, for sure. We, we know that what motivates suicide more than anything else is overwhelming pain and hopelessness that there's any way out of that. We know that for people who are struggling with those things, a strong sense of connection can, can keep them alive, keep them engaged with life and, and looking for, uh, for better options. And so the kinds of thing we're talking about, families in terrible turmoil and then who uh, get separated in a very abrupt way, there's almost no better way to put someone in terrible pain, feeling that they have no hope or or strategy for getting out of this and disrupting their connections all at the same time, um, it it is a a recipe for increased suicide risk. And is there, do we look at the difference as well, too, if somebody is detained, if a a family is detained, but detained together, uh, albeit not in great circumstances, uh, but is it, does it then lessen the risk that much? to keep a family together, even if it's in a very stressful situation, rather than separate them? I suspect we don't have very specific words on uh, research on your exact questions uh, speaking to it. But 
everything we know would suggest that keeping the family together would help. It would make the situation that much less uh, scary and uncertain and traumatic, and it would also allow family members to draw upon each other for support. It's also important to remember though, that people are resilient and that we should do everything we can to minimize these situations. At the same time, uh, we're not, the people are not being condemned. Or if people have gone through this kind of thing, they shouldn't feel that somehow they can't live a productive life. Um, so on the one hand, we do want to recognize that. We don't want to take away people's resilience if they've already experienced something like this. But on the other hand, we absolutely should minimize uh, and do everything we can to protect people from these situations. Well, and I would imagine, too, that would be part of it in that if years later, after something like this has happened, somebody is feeling suicidal or somebody is having these feelings but not quite sure and thinks, oh, well, I should have gotten over this by now or isn't quite sure where they're coming from, uh, is there still that stigma or still that reluctance to even acknowledge it and to try and figure out what it is that's making you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, people are are complicated, and so it's hard to know exactly the mechanisms by, by which uh, these experiences um, you know, they'll be they'll be profoundly negative for basically everybody. But for some people, they could still be struggling many years later. For other people, they may have these negative memories, but but be doing somewhat better. We don't know exactly why it goes in, in some ways in some cases, and others in others. Um, at the same time, these are the kinds of things that sh- uh, shake your sense of safety and security in the world. So when something's going wrong and you don't, and, and you have this background of you don't, even, you can't even count on your family for safety and security. That does make it that much harder to, to grapple with the world to, to you know, maintain a, a, an active, confident uh, approach despite adversity. And so that might be one way that it puts people at increased risk. At the same time, there are a lot of resources available. There are uh, uh, treatment professionals available. There are communities uh, that provide support that are available. And so there, there are options for folks. And what about the age of the children? And not suggesting it's okay at any age, but does it make a difference if we're talking about a 5-year-old or a 12-year-old? I don't know if it makes you know, some sort of quantifiable difference. Um, it, certainly there's going to be qualitative uh, differences, um, you know, for, 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 to the extent the child understands what's happening or doesn't, that, that will have a large effect on their just subjective emotional experience of it. Um, in terms of short-term suicide risk, younger children, they can feel terrible, but they you know, fortunately don't usually take their lives in part because they're probably not cognitively capable of sort of putting all that together. Whereas uh, children, as they approach 12, 13, 14, they do become capable of that. And there have been selective reports of you know, teenage age uh, children who have been separated, at least in the U.S., um, trying to run away, but in some cases uh, trying to attempt suicide. Is it important then that parents know in these scenarios, if, when you are reunited, that that is part of the healing process and that's something that you need to talk about or that's something that you need to be aware of? We have a lot of ability to, to heal naturally from traumatic experiences, but they all will start with some version of you know, reconnecting with supports, reconnecting with uh, whether it's a family or community or both that gives a sense of safety. So I think it'll vary a lot, uh, case by case, how much someone needs to specifically actually talk about what happened. But reuniting people with their support systems and with their families, uh, there's going to be no more important first step. All right. Uh, Professor Klonsky, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for your time this morning. A pleasure to be here. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at CKNW.com, the Radio Player Canada app, 
TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.